Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book One Predestination and Other Games of Chance A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Stephanie Sawyer George Clensos With original music by Danny Shade This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now... Episode 20. Hello, this is Christiana Ellis, author of Space Casey, Christiana's Shallow Thoughts, and Nina Kimberly the Merciless, a comic fantasy novel available as a podcast and coming to print this May from Dragon Moon Press. You can find all my stuff at christianaellis.com. But right now, you're listening to Predestination, and this is the story so far. The Persians are coming. Their fleet, built in secret and consisting of an unknown number of new destroyers, was seen leaving Earth orbit by a TGN camera cloud. Nobody knows where they came from, Nobody knows where they're going. As a matter of courtesy, Cassie Orenthal has alerted Joss Kyle to the fact. She's also told him that she's on her way to see him. It's the best she can do under the circumstances. But not knowing who she can trust, she doesn't dare tell him who she's bringing with her. As far as Douglas Reeves is concerned... The game is changing even as he finishes setting up his board. Fortunately, he's older than he looks. A lot older. And he's played the game of politics long enough that he's already laid down some markers that he can call in as insurance. Twelve hours out from Luna, about eight million clicks from orbit, Kyrie's main torch guttered and gave out. Fuel was cheap by historical standards, but pushing a few thousand metric tons at full G acceleration was still prohibitively expensive. Mass driver propulsion, on the other hand, was as cheap as the interplanetary debris used to load the railguns. With her torch extinguished, Kyrie's rails came online, maintaining a constant 1G acceleration for the trip to Nineveh. All twelve of them clustered in a symmetrical array around Kyrie's main torch, long electromagnetic catapults that hurled rocks, dust, and other detritus along the axis of the ship from stem to stern at speeds near 0.7C, pushing the ship steadily towards her destination once she broke minimum safe distance. Lunar docking regulations prohibited mass driver propulsion within one lunar unit of the planetoid. Although it was no more possible to enforce traffic regulations in interplanetary space than it once was to enforce shipping regulations on the high seas, commercial vessels honored the ban in the interest of keeping their favorite port safe from an endless stream of raining debris. The mass drivers fired symmetrically for several days, cutting a swath inside Earth's orbit and outwards again to Nineveh, circling the sun halfway between the orbits of Earth and Mars. On the ninth day, 
The drivers fell silent, and the ship's maneuvering thrusters pushed it into a long tumble, correcting her course for the final deceleration into Nineveh's docking pattern. P-E-N-C-E. Double word score. Cassie's score totaled up on the boardside readout. With those 18 points, she was up by 10. That's an old one. Got a taste for old British literature. Her passenger sat like a hapless groundhog who'd never felt freefall, his arse glued to his seat, strapped in like he was afraid for his life. Cassie shook her head and shifted her mag boots, regrounding herself in a more comfortable position, her feet affixed firmly to the galley wall. She would have preferred to be swaddled comfortably on the bridge, the doors sealed, floating gently between the walls with a book or a PPD. But she had a passenger, and only one, and he'd bought out the whole ship. That meant she had to entertain him, and she had no desire to bed Jade's lover. Not that she should have cared now, not after Jade had played the knife edge with her life. Besides... Reeves was a contemptible fucker, and she had no wish to get closer than shooting distance if she could help it. But she couldn't risk him getting space-happy, much as it would suit the bastard. There's a lot of time between planets. You have to do something to keep your mind limber on a flight. She wanted to keep the conversation at a minimum. When she was eight, a man had offered her a penny to follow him. She'd never been an obedient child, but when her mother told her to take care of her sister, she did as she was told. The man was well-dressed and had a wife in tow. In retrospect, was probably trying to buy Cassie away from the streets so his wife could be a mother. But an eight-year-old girl whose mother scraped out a living among the comfort holes beneath the great machines of Darkside knows what happens when a man offers money and says, Follow me. The penny was old, green and mottled, like something that had clawed its way out of a sludge bin. About the same color as her passenger, who kept refusing to take his nausea meds. Don't squiff on my scrabble board, Greeny. He had asked to play with perfect deference. He treated her like a captain, even though she knew he had to be going nuts letting an underling, and a criminal one at that, give the orders. Now he watched the board intently, trying to make small talk, as if the concentration would take his mind off the fact that his digestive juices weren't settled nicely in his gut, but were instead floating in little globs like planets without a proper orbital schedule. His lack of gravitas in a weightless environment made it easier to tolerate him, even with what she knew. He was another well-dressed man who had given her coin to go away with him. The difference was that this time, she knew exactly what she was in for, and she didn't have a choice in the matter. But it was her ship. Here, he was on her turf. Reeves burped uncomfortably. Goddess below, Reeves, take your meds. He looked at her like he'd caught her licking a radiation badge. Keep those things away from me. He fixed his attention on the magnetic tiles in front of him. He shuffled them around ritualistically, like he was expecting them to spontaneously produce a seven-letter triple-word winner. Bloody damn grav monkey, shifting under his Velcro seatbelt like he'd be able to settle a stomach in an equilibrium that was in constant upheaval. And that was the most irritating part of all of it. Doug Reeves might be a dirty, rotten son of a bitch. He might even be the leader of the resistance movement that she'd mortgaged her organization's future on. 
He might have stolen Jade from her, dogged her steps since he was sent up to his smarmy little stone office and put on the board, but the big, dark, squirming cancer in her galley had spent nearly as much time as she had with his nose in a book. The collective years she'd spent between planets kept her, out of sheer necessity, neck-deep in everything from Euripides to Scott Sigler to Ivan Karapov. Boredom was the schoolmistress she'd never had on her own. And the nauseated little heel grinder had the vocabulary of a classics department. If he lost his lunch, he'd probably squiff alphabet soup out in Shakespeare sonnets. As triumphantly as he could, he built an N-U-P onto the front of her pence. Nuppence? Cockney, 19th century. Means penniless. A state neither of us... Need worry about too much. Reeves grimaced. She imagined it was the best he could do under the circumstances. His eyes weren't focusing properly. He burped again. <clears throat> it was sharp, burning like a sulfuric acid spill. I'm not going to put up with that smell for the next 18 hours. You can go to your room and be miserable if you like, but if you want to stay here and don't take your meds, I'm going to force them down what's left of your esophagus. The greeny groundhog didn't have a hope in hell of holding on to his lunch, and nobody that space sick could play consistently. Just to make it interesting for herself, she played with half her brain tied behind her back, so to speak. Doing the books with the PPD stylus tucked behind her ear wasn't exactly the height of sensuality, but it had to be done, and it kept her distracted enough that she wasn't continually fighting back the urge to claw his eyes out. That, and it kept her mind busy enough that she didn't worry about accidentally letting slip that she knew who he was. She'd gone over the figures 30 times since they departed Luna, ten of those times in the last 12 hours during their skew-flip mid-voyage. They weren't adding up. Troubles? She glared at him and pointed at the bottle of medicine. Captain Oren. Thal, is it? He knew goddamned well who she was. I'm allergic to Eluth. As if the universe needed another scrub-bumping moron. Keep your eyes on that game board. This'll make you lose it. Cassie rolled her eyes and kicked off the ceiling towards the med cabinet, tucked and rolled in mid-air, splayed her legs wide, and landed on the far wall, straddling across the cabinet door. She squatted down and slid the door up, reached in and grabbed a small vaporizer, little more than a polymer bag with a mouthpiece and a fuel trap, and a pair of joints. You did notice that people have been knocking around in freefall for a couple of centuries now, I assume. <sighs> this isn't my first time, you know. I, I had to spend my immigration run sedated. Oh. Worst thing they could have done for you. 48 hours in freefall and most everyone acclimates permanently. She opened the end of the bag and scraped the contents of one of the joints into the enclosure and pressed the fragments down into the trap, snapping the grill over it. She closed the cabinet door and skipped sideways to the stove, grabbing a portable safety heat element, and then kicked and flipped back to her home position above the Scrabble board with practiced ease. She thrust the vaporizer at Reeves. Um, what's that for? Cannabis. If you can't take a loose, this'll help. I, I don't smoke that stuff. I don't blame you. I hate having to carry extra scrubbers for it. This is a vaporizer. It works fast. She looked at her mishmash of letters and decided to let them stew for a few more minutes. Reeves was fighting down another belch. This one was more violent, and the look on his face told her all she needed to know about how dry it wasn't. Good. Serves a little fucker right. She needed the satisfaction of humiliating him properly. 
He was nearly doubled over now. Beads of sweat pooled on his head. His skin had gone from ashen pale to actual green. The migraine was setting in. She had another three minutes, maybe, to get him smoking. She planted her right hand on the tabletop, kicked lightly off the ceiling, and pivoted until her feet found the floor and were sucked down onto it. She reached out to him and grabbed him by his short, wiry hair and lifted it up so his face was looking straight at her. His eyes had no idea what they were up to anymore. It would have to do. Listen up, Groundhog. You're space sick. You're spiking a ten on the Garn scale. You're in for a day of complete misery. He was already there, judging by the way his eyes were crossing and twitching. And since we're doing a 4G decel, you won't be rested for docking at Nineveh. Now, you can be a moron and squiff all over, in which case I'm going to lock you in here until you clean everything up, or you can take your medication. She forced the business end of the vaporizer into his mouth and popped the safety heat open and pressed it to the trap. Inhale. Now. <laughs> she squeezed his hair. The pain snapped him back to awareness for a moment. Inhale. Now. Reeves took a long drag and blew it right back out again. Again. This time, hold it in. The bag, inflated from the vaporized THC, deflated as he pulled the contents down into his lungs. He held it, looking like he was piling a few extra grains onto the mountain of his misery. You can let it out now. <laughs> Take it. He reached up for the mouthpiece and the vaporizer. If he'd been under full gravity, he probably wouldn't have been able to keep his balance, but in freefall there was no balance to keep. The heating element is constant. When you stop getting the drug, I'll give you more. You should start feeling like yourself in a couple minutes. Thanks. He sounded like a mugging victim. It gave her the chance to mull her words over. <laughs> Nothing was coming. The color was starting to return to his face, but the smell from his burps was acrid and making her a bit space-sick herself. She kicked over to the medicine cabinet and grabbed another joint and a second safety heat, and lit up. The smoke made the inside of her lungs itch but it helped her steady down and took the edge off her irritation. Once back at the table, she cast her eyes over the tiles again, then dragged them across the crowded board. She didn't have anything but eyes for vowels, and everything else was T's, R's, and a Q. Nothing worth much. Unless... Yes, there. An A and an O spaced two apart in a vertical line on another double word score. She grabbed two R's and two T's and an I and laid them down... Pointedly, in front of him. T-R-A-I-T-O-R. Traitor. She leveled it like an accusation. He didn't flinch. The computer tallied the score. She was up by ten. She drew five more letters out of the bag. Another R, a G, an E, and two U's. A slightly less frustrating mix. The ten minutes she'd taken mulling over her move had brought him a good ways back from the edge. Without looking up at her, he took his hands from the vaporizer and plopped S-A-V-I-O-R down, building rightways from the end of Trader. He looked up at her and arched an eyebrow. The computer tallied his score and he drew more letters, scraping the bottom of the bag. He was down by one. Savior. You're gonna need one of those when we dock. The words came out a lot gentler than she meant it. The pot was relaxing her more than she really wanted to, but she couldn't let it slip that she knew who he was. Baiting him was the best she could do. How do you figure that, green lady? 
He'd avoided letting her know that he knew who she was up till now. The THC was getting to him. You're going to see a lot of old friends when we dock. She played R-G-U-E off the O in Savior. Rogue. She was ahead now by 13. He could still wipe her out in one move. They might want to throw you a party. Well, it's a good thing I'll have you to keep an eye out for me. Reeves took another hit off the vaporizer. He had her. And he knew it. You bought a transport, Groundhog, not an escort service. I bought the whole run at a premium. Besides... He inhaled deeply, obviously beginning to enjoy himself. One man's traitor is another man's savior. (laughs) When he talked, his voice sounded like he was speaking through a throat full of chalk dust. So he knew she'd protect him, even though he didn't know that she knew who he was. Somehow, he knew. Treason isn't a suit that sits well on most shoulders. That doesn't stop people from taking it off the rack. He played his letters, all seven, bridging three other words and landing on a triple word score on the right side of the board. F-L-A-G-I-T-I-O-U-S. Flagitious? Where'd you pull that one from? Just by watching you, green lady. Give me a dictionary reference. He took the last hit from his vaporizer. It means... (laughs) Criminal. (laughs) You are one rotten son of a bitch, you know that? (laughs) You only say that because you're down by 20. This game isn't over yet. She took the last hit on her joint and held it for a moment, looking at him. He was here for a reason, and it couldn't be a good one. Not by a long shot. I'm not the one down by 20 points and floating on the ceiling. And I'm not the one who ditched his job on the high court to go joyriding on a private freighter. What the hell are you doing here? (sighs) Playing Scrabble. What are you doing here? Wicked? Criminal? Green lady? Where the fuck do you get off? Her anger was getting away from her. You bought all the billets on my boat when you knew who I was. Cassie wanted to rip his nose off. She threw her PPD at the wall. It ricocheted off and hit her tile sled, throwing letters through the air where they bounced haphazardly off the galley cabinets. You spent your life since you got to Luna chasing me. You wreck- She caught herself. It was the pot. She never smoked much because she couldn't hold it. She forced herself to take a deep breath and choose her words carefully. Why would you buy out the ship? My ship! She wanted to laugh in his face and smash it in. He had always been out to kill her. He got close once when he killed Joe. She suddenly wished she didn't know his secret. Then maybe she could afford to kill him. Reeves looked at her for a long moment. His dark eyes dilated wide and boring straight through her. Because. His words were careful. I can count on you to protect me. He had her. He knew it. And he was going to play her like a fiddle through whatever he had cooking. He pulled the tab on his Velcro restraint, but stayed still. I'm going to need some more of those to make it through the... skew-flip? You know where they live. She tapped the ceiling behind her and floated down to the table and started clearing up the remains of the Scrabble set. Reeves threw the strap of his Velcro restraint wide and pushed himself towards the cabinet and started rustling around. She kept her eyes firmly glued to the table, trying unsuccessfully to ignore the nascent Caligula rifling through her medicine cabinet. He floated out the door and it slid shut behind him. Cassie mechanically finished picking up the tiles, stuck haphazardly here and there to all the metal surfaces in the room. He was in her crew quarters right now, smoking the bud she kept around for deserving people, 
and the only reason she let him have it was so that more of his stink wouldn't sink into her home. When they landed at Nineveh, she'd have the place sterilized, get his stench out of the air. Coming to Nineveh with a passenger roster of one and a small cargo load was bad enough. The fact that he'd paid the entire fare plus all the port taxes made the whole thing worse. He was taking her in as his handmaiden, his personal bodyguard, to Nineveh. The last place in the universe he should want to go. Leader of the Resistance? More like a stooge to set them all up. Shelley's stooge. Shelley, the one man in power the loonies all thought they could count on. The man who sold them out because of terrorism in the Resistance. Reeves might fool Jade, but he didn't fool Cassie. He was Shelley's golden boy and was playing them, dragging her right along. Of course. The lid snapped shut on the Scrabble game with a tinny echo of finality rebounding off the Stark galley walls. There was only one reason that Doug Reeves could possibly be interested in Nineveh, and she was going as his bodyguard to protect him while he led her straight to Joss Kyle. What else could it be? Once she was certain that Reeves was locked securely in his room, Cassie locked the hatch leading from the passenger decks to the bridge. She opened the door to her cabin and turned the coffee machine to pressure mode. Then she planted her feet on the port wall near her pilot's chair and tried to calm herself. The figures in her PPD still weren't adding up. A lot of money was going missing in increments. Someone was smart, shaving fractions of a credit off interest rates here and there. Nothing that would show up on a casual audit. Then there was Zyler's evasion about the disappearing dock worker and Reeves' interest in the whole affair. Something was going on in her organization, and Reeves knew more about it than she did. Cassie had been careful to keep Jade isolated from anything important, just in case she turned. So his information wasn't coming from her. Thank the goddess for pitiably small favors. The walls on her bridge kept her close and secure, but a few meters aft, the man who stole her sister and played her for a fool floated over his bunk smoking her hash. Reeves wanted her to protect him against Joss. There was only one reason he'd need that. He was going there to capture him. Unless she could do something, one of them was going to end up dead. But that didn't answer the question. Reeves conscripted her to grab Joss in the first place. Playing the commission in the confession booth back from her memory, she could hear his voice unmistakably. He knew what an asset Joss would turn out to be. Now, with the tools of victory that Joss passed through her to Doug bearing fruit, he was going there to find him, maybe to have him killed. So what was she missing? What did he know, or think he knew, to make Joss look like a problem, or a threat? Reeves, in his guise as Loxley, hadn't voiced any concern about Joss before he'd taken the core from Walters. Oh, no. Something was on that core. Something that incriminated Joss in... What? She felt the anger ebbing away as the high kicked in. The world was too complicated when you looked at it up close. She needed to clear her head and let the answers come. Cassie slowed her breathing deliberately. Relax, Cass. Relax and let it come. 
She needed to float in the void for a while, empty her mind, let the thoughts come together. She reached down and threw a switch on the chair's arm, and the rose-petal shielding retracted from the dome at the nose of the ship. Outside, through the fullerene, the stars slid lazily by as Kyrie tumbled in its slow skew flip, moving slowly enough to avoid jostling the passengers. She stepped out of her mag shoes and slithered out of her ship suit, then swung herself along the grab bars down to the floor and across it until she floated directly opposite the center of the dome. Eyes closed, deep breath, and flip. Cassie's green eyes fluttered open on the depths of the cosmos retreating infinitely before her. She knew the expansive feeling was the THC, but she didn't care. She needed the rest, and out from the dozens of nasty little circles her mind was running around in. After a couple of tries, she pulled her legs up to herself one by one and folded them into a lotus position and floated just within reach of the grab bars on the floor. Brittany would be proud if she could see. She'd been pushing Cassie to practice her yoga poses and to learn to relax for months now. One of these days... The two of them would take a weekend away somewhere, and Cassie would regale her with all the contortions she could think of. If she wasn't careful, Brittany might even get her dancing. Right now, Cassie could think of nothing finer than to prance across the floor with her, to kiss her, and to finally admit how much she loved her. When all this was over, and Cassie was safely back on Luna, that's what she would do. The tears welling up in her eyes wouldn't fall. There was nothing to pull them out. Cassie reached up and brushed them away. She felt small, looking out at the stars, each one of them bigger than she could comfortably imagine. So far away, they looked like little pinpricks in a black veil covering the universe like a handkerchief over a snow globe. The warm currents of the ventilation system tickled the tiny hairs on her skin, pulling the bridge around her like a blanket. Kyrie's command center was her womb, her own private meditation chamber. But she wasn't alone in the universe. Little tendrils of loyalty stretched between her and Luna, and on out to Nineveh. They connected her to people who depended on her for their livelihood, people who trusted her with their lives, people who loved her, though she could never understand why, and people who played her to get a leg up. Like Reeves. But which was Joss? What if he was setting her up to fail? What if he was connected to Walters somehow? Too many of his eagle coins were stashed in Walters' safe. Something on that core pushed Doug out of his safe zone towards the place he'd helped turn into a penal colony. Maybe she could find a way. Cassie shook her head. She'd taken something else out of the safe. In the festival of treachery right after searching Walters' flat, she'd forgotten it. She tucked, rolled over, and wedged a toe into one of the recessed grips in the floor. She sailed across the bridge and caught herself on the pilot's chair, then slid in and fastened the five-point belt. The blended hemp fiber straps scratched at her skin as she replayed the memory. The last time she held it, she'd been sitting here. She'd sat in the chair, chewing over what she would do about Jade. She'd decided to confront Jade. She'd pulled it out of her pocket and tossed it at one of the mag strip above the pilot's console... Cassie looked up. The mag strip held two wrenches, a keycard, and three PPDs. 
one of them wasn't hers. Cassie pulled the quick-release tab on the safety harness and leapt up towards the mag strip, grabbing the PPD on her way past. Her back bumped into the dome as she curled up against it, back to the universe. The PPD absorbed her consciousness. It was all there was. No encryption. Did Walter seriously believe the safe was enough protection for his little gadget? The memory was chock full of spreadsheets. Investment records, transfer records, interest payments as far as her fingers could find. Whoever Walters kept books for had a lot of money changing hands, almost as if he was getting a payoff from... He can't be serious. Cassie recognized some of the routing numbers. They were for accounts that she interacted with weekly. Some of them down through her organization. Some of them for accountants whose owners lived on Mars. A lot of them numbered accounts in the LoxCore bank. And each one feeding money into Walter's account, and from there funneling out to... God, no, please. They only funneled two places. One, an account at Credit Suisse that she didn't recognize. The other... The other was labeled Phalanx. So Scott Walters was funneling money to Joss... From who? And if that was the case, why did Joss claim not to know him? Cassie tossed the PPD back at the mag strip where it landed and stuck with a dull clank. She couldn't believe it. No, more than that, she wouldn't. Joss played cagey with her, and she'd only spent a couple of months in close contact with him, all told. But she knew the man. She knew him! They had walked through the same dark places. They understood each other and had since the first time he garroted her. They each knew when the other was playing them. It couldn't be true. There was no fucking way in all the seven rings of hell the goddess kept for those who desecrated her sky that Joss was false. No way a man like that would walk out on his children, his career, and everything he valued just to follow orders. And he wouldn't make it a rogue scheme of his own. Not for gods, for country, and certainly not for cash. It wasn't in his character. But the numbers were there on that shitty little screen. She couldn't unsee them, and whatever Reeves found on that core had led him to the same conclusion. Reeves was here for Joss, and he knew she had to help him. Somehow, he knew that she couldn't hurt Jade by not bringing him home alive. If he opened the ball on Joss, he wouldn't walk out alive. She was about to stand in between two of the most powerful, dangerous men she'd ever run across. Goddess Blow, what am I going to do? You've been listening to episode 20 of Antithesis, book 1, Predestination, and Other Games of Chance. Written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. This episode starred Stephanie Sawyer as Cassie Orenthal and George Klensos as Douglas Reeves. Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2008 and 2009, Kitty Nakian and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 1997 and 2008, J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2009, Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. (laughs) 
This is Edward G. Talbot, author of the podcast novel, New World Orders, www.edwardgtalbot.com. And I have a question for you. Do you think you know what's going on? Do you think the CIA killed Kennedy? Or that politicians in Washington, D.C. are actually in charge? And what about global warming? Is it a left-wing hallucination? A right-wing cover-up? Or maybe it's neither. Maybe the truth is far more sinister. There is a conspiracy. But it's not just one party. And it's not to protect anything as mundane as billion-dollar profits. Of course, it's just a novel. Right? Go to www.edwardgtalbot.com and listen to New World Orders now, before it's too late. Oh man, I kid you not, I would not want to be in Cassie's shoes on this one. For that matter, I wouldn't want to be in anyone's shoes when they get to Nineveh. I mean, can you imagine what's going to happen when Allie finds out why they're there? I wouldn't want to be within one astronomical unit of that. There are only seven episodes to go. I can't wait till you guys hear the end. My story for Erotica a la carte will play on April 15th. Think of it as a little tax day consolation present. It will post that day over at www.eroticaalacarte.com. It's a fabulous series. I highly recommend it. Let's see what else is going on here. Several of you have written in or messaged me regarding my trip to Chicago at the end of March. After a lot of deliberating and priority shuffling, I've decided to give it a miss this time, so I won't be up there this month after all, which sucks. It would have been great to meet some of you that I've been corresponding with, and to meet again some of those who have come through the Bay Area. I'm still busting my ass writing down from 10. Progress is good, and I should be able to finish it in plenty of time to podcast it starting around Memorial Day. Of course, that assumes I have a cast by then. If you're interested in auditioning for one of the remaining roles, please email me at dan at jdsawyer.net. There are three male and two female lead parts left, as well as two supporting roles. I'll have a character page up by the middle of the month with more info on the available roles, at least for the roles that are still available by then. Now, I've gotten a couple of emails about Down From 10 in the last week, and the recurring question is, so what is Down From 10? Is it the next antithesis novel? So I'm going to take a couple minutes here to tell you a bit about it. Down From 10 is not the sequel to Predestination. That book, which is called Free Will, is due out in podcast form in September during the podcaster triple threat on 9909. Uh, where Philippa Ballantyne and Chris Lester are both debuting their next podcast novels as well. And it picks up right where Predestination leaves off. In between Predestination and Free Will, I'll be podcasting Down From Ten. Down From Ten is a shorter novel, and it will podcast over the summer and into the fall, where it'll run concurrently with Free Will. It's a mystery drama in the tradition of Agatha Christie's Ten Little Indians, also called And Then There Were None. It begins with a group of artists, eight people who have come to a mountain retreat for ten days of rest and relaxation. Most of them are old friends, people closer than family, while others are newcomers. Some make a living from their art, others do it to keep themselves sane. They're dancers, composers, sculptors, photographers, painters, and writers. 
They're physicists, historians, school teachers, and missionaries. They are four men and four women, isolated from the world for ten days. When the snows come, twenty feet of snow and an avalanche on top bury the house. They have to find a way to hold it together until help can come. The question is, can all their preparations for physical survival protect them from cabin fever? Particularly once they all start having the same dreams. It has elements of comedy, horror, paranormal, and science fiction, but it is essentially a character drama. My readers tell me it's more literary than my other work, though they can't quite tell me what they mean by that. The emotional tenor is very different from Predestination, as are the characters. The concerns, the themes, the issues, also very different. Now, why would I do something like this? Isn't leaving you hanging in the middle of antithesis kind of... cruel? Well, yeah, kind of is. But that part was unavoidable. Free Will is a very delicate story, and it's requiring more revision and tuning than I was originally expecting. It wouldn't be ready in any case in time to pick up without a gap. And I don't particularly want to leave you hanging with nothing besides short stories for several months. The second reason to put this out now is that it is a departure for me. I'm working on building a long-term career as a multi-genre author. By making my second book a very different kind of story than my first book, I demonstrate that I'm not a one-trick pony. I don't want to get locked into writing just one kind of book or story for the rest of my life. Authors who have done that very rarely continue to be consistently good over a long career, and they're more vulnerable to market shifts. And I plan to be in this game for the long haul. And the third reason is that it's a challenge. Aside from being a different kind of story, it's also a different writing process. Down From Ten began life last year as a screenplay I was asked to write for Canadian TV. When the production deal fell through, at that point I had a great story and no way to use it. Although I still would eventually like to turn it into a miniseries or a movie, learning the financing end of the film business is a bit of a long haul, and while I'm doing that I thought, why not learn about how to novelize a screenplay, and give the story another polished draft in the process. I think you guys are going to enjoy the story, and I hope you tune in for it when I start dropping episodes, hopefully beginning Memorial Day weekend. The next part of the most recent feedback show will post this weekend. There may be a third coming, depending on how the edit goes. I'm also planning on dropping the new episode of the Polyschismatic Reprobates Hour. For those of you who don't know what it is, the Reprobates Hour is my cultural commentary podcast. It doesn't have a release schedule, and I'm very sporadic about it. But on the show, I, and sometimes a cohort or two, interview someone I find terribly interesting on topics as diverse as H.P. Lovecraft, the history of religion, economics, art, podcasting your novel, sound engineering, science, or in the case of this new episode, the history of science in the Greek world, and why it's not what you learned in school. Historian Richard Carrier goes into what was done in the ancient world, how we know it was done, and why some of the popular myths about the kinds of science the Greeks did continue to be, well, popular. You can find that, along with all the previous episodes, at www.reprobateshour.com. Remember that you can email questions, comments, attaboys, criticisms, and death threats to dan at jdsawyer.net or leave them on the blog at antithesis.jdsawyer.net. You can call and leave voicemail, and please do, at area code 206-350-5739. 
and remember to spread the word. If you like what you're hearing, tell your friends, post a link, give away MP3s, or pelt your enemies with CD copies of the first few episodes to get people hooked. Also, drop by our Zazzle store and get a My Name is Joss Kyle or other Antithesis t-shirt. If you'd like other kinds of swag, drop me an email and let me know what. Keep an eye on the feed this Sunday for the new Dealing In, and on the feed next Thursday for the next episode, I'll actually be on time this time. Until then, I leave you with the nagging questions. What is Doug's endgame? How will the Hartmans play into his plans? Will Joss suspect a trap closing in around him? What will he do if he does? And perhaps most importantly... What will Cassie do now that she's face-to-face with her own divided loyalties? Find out next Thursday. And until next time, remember... It isn't whether you win or lose. It's how you rig the game.